Hey everybody, this is Pastor Chad. Today is Sunday, January 3rd, 2021, the first uh, Sunday of 2021. So welcome to the Way Ministry Church live online. And if you're watching this on YouTube, welcome. And uh, in spite of how ridiculously crazy 2020 was. I'm excited about 2021. Like I've said before, I think it's going to be a fascinating time for Christians as we see so much of uh, prophetic scripture um, being acted out in the world around us. And we see more clearly the battle between good and evil between Christ and Satan uh, carried out more uh obviously, in the world around us. So uh, it's going to be a fascinating year, but it's going to be a year that's full of challenges and a year of either opportunity to grow closer to Christ through the challenges and trials that we will probably endure. But it will be a time of blessing and a time to grow closer to the Lord. And if you're not in Him, it could be a time uh, that really (laughs) uh, pushes you to the limit if you're trying to Uh, navigate through this dark world by yourself without the comfort and the support and the strength of Christ. So, uh, hey, mom, dad, good to see you guys. Thank you for commenting. Again, if anybody's watching and you can't hear what I'm saying, please comment. Or if you have trouble with the picture, comment and let me know. So with that, uh, let's pray and we will get into today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather here today, uh, to meet together online from a distance, and to hear your word, and to seek you, to grow closer to you. And Lord, as we uh, move into this message today, and we continue in uh, the book of Revelation, I ask, Lord, that you would bless us each with a greater understanding, a greater wisdom of you, of your word and your truth, and that you would just ground us solidly in the gospel, enable us, enable us through your word, through the blessing of your Holy Spirit, to go forth into the world with uh, power, uh, with confidence and courage and boldness. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the message today is The Singularity of Creation and History. Um, Probably an intriguing title. I hope it is. And it's something uh, that I'm very interested in, uh, the topic of the singularity, and I will explain what that is uh, briefly as we get into this message. Uh, If you remember, a few weeks ago, we started the book of Revelation, and I just want to read Revelation 1, 1, 2, 3 to preface what we're going to get into today. Uh, Revelation 1, 1, 1 through 3 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show to his bondservants the the things which must soon take place, And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. We've already been through that portion of scripture, but I wanted to reiterate it because I think it's a beautiful introduction to the book of John, and it really helps us to move into verses uh, four through eight, which we'll be getting into today. But before I do that, I wanted to explain why I use the term singularity, and I will explain more fully uh, at the end of the sermon how it applies to the gospel message. So singularity, and I'm going to give you a couple different definitions because there are different views of what a singularity is in the world right now. This is from uh, the website universetoday.com, and it talks about what's called the gravitational singularity. It says, in scientific terms, a gravitational singularity or space-time singularity is a location where the quantities that are used to measure the gravitational Uh, field become infinite in a way that does not depend on the coordinate system. In other words, it is a point in which all physical laws are indistinguishable from one another, where space and time are no longer interrelated realities, but merge indistinguishably and cease to have any independent meaning. From Wikipedia, 
we get the definition of what's called the technological singularity. Also, and it says the technological singularity, also simply the singularity, is a hypothetical point in time at which technological growth becomes uncontrollable and irreversible, resulting in unforeseeable changes to human civilization. According to the most popular version of the singularity hypothesis called intelligent explosion, intelligence explosion, an upgradable intelligent agent will eventually enter a runaway reaction of self-improvement cycles, each new and more intelligent generation appearing more and more rapidly, causing, causing an explosion in intelligence and resulting in a powerful superintelligence that qualitatively far surpasses all human intelligence. The first use of the concept of a singularity in the technological context was John von Neumann. Stanislaw Ulam reports a discussion with von Neumann centered on the accelerating progress of technology and changes in the mode of human life, which gives the appearance of approaching some essential singularity in the history of the race beyond which human affairs as we know them could not continue. Subsequent authors have echoed this viewpoint. I.J. Goode's intelligent explosion model predicts that a future superintelligence will trigger a singularity. The concept and the term singularity were popularized by Werner Vinge in his 1993 essay, The Coming Technological Singularity, in which he wrote that it would signal the end of the human era as the new superintelligence would continue to upgrade itself and would advance technologically at an incomprehensible rate. He wrote that he would be surprised if, if it occurred before 2005 or after 2030. Public figures such as Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk have expressed concern that full artificial intelligence, or AI, could result in human extinction. The consequences of the singularity and its potential benefit or harm to the human race have been intensely debated. Four polls of AI researchers conducted in 2012 and 2013 by Nick Bostrom and Vincent C. Mueller suggested a median probability estimate of 50% that artificial general intelligence, or AGI, would be developed by 2040 to 2050. So now as I read that, you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with Christianity? What does this have to do with the gospel? What does it have to do with Christ? But I believe... As I move through the sermon today and as I move further into the book of Revelation, you'll see how very applicable these AI technologies and a technological singularity is to the things that were taught and were warned about in the book of Revelation. Consider that, and also in other books in the Bible that talk about eschatology or the end times, continue, uh, consider, I'll put this on the screen, Daniel 12, 4 which says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now that's a fascinating verse. Daniel, as we know, is giving these, given these uh, just mind-blowing prophetic visions of what the future holds for the world and how God's people will be cared for and saved through all these trials and tribulations that will be coming on the world. And he can't understand all the things that he's been shown in these visions. And at the end of the book, it says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth. I would say that's a good picture of the modern world for many years now. If you just picture that image of people going back and forth, people are very busy. People are constantly in motion. Travel is not much of a limitation anymore. We can travel anywhere around the world in a very, a very short amount of time. But it says, and knowledge will increase. That especially is very interesting for the times in which we live. Because have we seen knowledge increase exponentially in even just the last 50 to 75 years? And I would say yes. And then as the internet came along, knowledge increased drastically at a radical speed. We can go into our computer or on our phone and find an answer to just about any question that we want online now, regardless of what the topic is. 
So knowledge has increased drastically. So I would say that that verse is very applicable for the times in which we live. Now, what has not increased or what has probably decreased as knowledge has increased? Wisdom. Wisdom is something you don't see very often or you see very rarely exhibited in the modern world. There's a lot of knowledge, but there's a not, not a lot of wisdom. Why is that? Because when you get away from God, when you get away from God's perfect truth in Scripture, that is the source of all wisdom. You see? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. So we've got knowledge increasing, wisdom decreasing. So it's very interesting to consider that. Now, we talked about the uh, gravitation, or uh, yeah, the gravi I think it was the gravitational singularity and then the technological singularity. But I remember years ago reading about what I call an ultimate or a general singularity. And there's been this theory around for quite a while that all fields eventually will merge into one focal point or one singularity, medicine, finance, technology, religion, everything will merge into a central singularity. That's very interesting when you hear about all the talk of a one world government and globalization that is taking place around the world right now. So there's different views and there's different definitions of different types of singularities. But as you'll see, there's one that's very important for us to understand as we go through this message today. So the message is actually based on Revelation 1, 4 through 8, and it will address this singularity issue. But like I said, I'm really going to address it uh, and try to make the point as precisely as possible towards the end of the sermon. But you'll see it reflected as we go through this message today. And we look at Revelation 1, 4 through 8. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up and we'll read Revelation 1, 4 through 8. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first, firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So let's look at this. The first points I want to make is as we read this, it's very clearly, this is the greeting to John's letter. This is the greeting at the beginning of the letter that he is giving to the church and the seven churches that he writes to specifically, which we'll be getting into in the coming weeks. <clears throat> but all through Revelation, what we see is John is praising God very powerfully, even in this early stage the very beginning of the book of Revelation, we see that John is praising the Lord passionately. And then throughout Revelation, we're going to see the recurring themes of God's sovereignty, his plan of redemption, and Christ's second coming. Those are themes that will reoccur over and over again throughout the book of Revelation. We'll also see recurring themes of history revealed to John symbolically. And this is where so many people get confused and why there's so many conflicting uh, theories and views and opinions of how we are to view uh, the book of Revelation prophetically. But what you'll see is there's recurring themes of history revealed to John symbolically. And what I mean by that is the book of Revelation is, is written in what's called the apocryphal style. It's symbolic. It's not always, and actually rarely is, apocryphal language is rarely chronological. And that is where a lot of people run into a big mistake when they read Revelation because they, they see these, these amazing visions and these events that John writes about that he was shown by the angel of the Lord, and they think these events happen chronologically as you read through the book of Revelation. I do not believe that is the case because Jews in general 
did not always and quite rarely wrote in a chronological manner. But I believe what we'll see in the book of Revelation is John was being shown how events in history would be carried out, but he was being shown it from, I guess you could say, different vantage points or through different symbolic representations. So it's not always chronological. And then the other point that we have to keep in mind is symbolic versus literal writing or interpretation. When we read the Bible from Genesis up to the book of Revelation, we know as believers that we are to interpret the Bible literally, unless something is said to be symbolic or it's clearly symbolic. There is symbolism all through Scripture, but unless something is clearly symbolic or told to be to us that it's symbolic, we are to understand it literally. Apocryphal language is the opposite. It is symbolic unless we are told to interpret it literally. This is very important. When you start getting into the numerology of Revelation, uh, the 1,000 years, the number seven, what it symbolizes, and we'll get into that. Uh, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, is that literally a thousand years or is it a symbolic number? Very important to understand these things correctly, or you can be led astray and be looking for things to happen that are not biblical, you see? So let's look at Revelation 1-4 to get started here. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So John to the seven churches. So let's. what I'm going to do is I want to break down these scriptures piece by piece so we really get an understanding right from the start of what some of the symbolism is. Seven, what it equals in biblical symbolic language is completeness or fullness. So when you see the number seven, especially in the book of Revelation, just relate it to meaning that something has been completed or something is complete. And one thing that's fascinating about the book of Revelation especially is it's organized in sevens. And the biblical number symbolizing completeness is all through the book of Revelation. Not just the written number seven that's, that's, that's clearly on the page, but if you take the book of Revelation and you break it apart and you look at it grammatically and you look at it poetically and you look at it the way that it was written, there are the events that happen in series of sevens. There are sevens within sevens within sevens all through the book of Revelation. And I don't even know if anybody's ever been able to quantify how many times the number seven is represented throughout the book of Revelation. Now, notice the this is very important here. The choice of seven churches expresses this theme of completeness, and it hints at the wider relevance of the message to all churches in all times. There's a reason why we will see in the coming weeks that John wrote seven letters, to seven churches, and they each, they each have a very specific message to those churches. Now, I want you to look at these two verses, Revelation 1, 1 through 3, and Revelation 2, 7. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, that you could say the invisible church down through history, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he's writing to all the churches down through history. The letters to the seven churches are meant to be edifying for all of the churches and to be a warning quite often to stay on the proper narrow path in following Christ. So to ask the question, might the seven churches in the book of Revelation together represent all of the church in type down through history? I would say the answer to that question is yes. And the reason I say churches in type is because when we start going through those letters, you will see that each church has certain strengths and weaknesses that the Lord is addressing. So they are a great lesson for us as individuals and for each individual church within the body of Christ throughout the world. 
Now he says, uh, he refers to Asia. He says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. John's referring to, uh, what John is referring to there is an area in Western Turkey that was a Roman province at that time. That's what he's referring to when he says Asia. Now notice he says, grace to you and peace. What I want you to notice is if you go, especially throughout the New Testament, notice how often that type of greeting appears all throughout the New Testament. Paul used it const constantly. So obviously it's very important for us to understand what is meant by grace and peace. And I believe that the blessing of verse 3, if you go back to verse 3 from a couple weeks ago, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. What might that blessing be? I believe it's explained in verse 4, grace and peace. If you have grace and peace, everything else falls into place. It's an important and profound truth and promise of God that genuine eternal grace and peace are only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those outside of Christ are alone and unprotected from the tempests and deceptions of this world. So true grace and true peace are a blessing that you can only truly have, especially in an eternal sense, if you abide in Christ and in his word, if you are in him in salvation. Ephesians 4.14 says, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We're stable. We're strong. We're not affected by the world as those of the world are. Very important for the times in which we live. Then he continues, From him who is and who was and who is to come. So it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. What a title. Who is, who was, and who is to come. Now I want you to look back at Exodus 3, 14 and 15 to help us understand what it means by who is, who was, and who is to come. This is when Moses spoke with God when God came to him in the form of the burning bush. Said God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall, you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall, you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So I think it's fair to say that for, for him who is and who was and who is to come, another definition of that is, I am. He always was, he always is, he always will be. So it's the title of God. But the other thing it tells us is that the Lord is not limited by space and time. That name, I am, or who was, who is, and who is to come, transcends space and time. He's not limited by space. He's not limited by time. He's not subject to the laws of physics and nature that we are familiar with. God transcends that. He's outside of that. But I also want you to think about this. Might what is and what was and what is to come be an accurate description of the book of Revelation? So Jesus refers to himself as him who is and who was and who is to come. But I believe that we could also change that a little bit to help us understand the book of Revelation as what is and what was and what is to come. Because the book of Revelation constantly refers to history. It refers constantly to the Old Testament. You can't truly understand the book of Revelation unless you look at it through the context of the Old Testament. What was? What is the, the church age that we're in right now and what we're looking forward to, what is to come, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I believe it is an accurate description of the book of Revelation. There's a quote I heard. Um, I like to watch the X-Files because I'm, I've always been into uh, science fiction and, and fringe type topics. And I heard a quote the other day uh, on that, the other night when I was just watching an episode of that show and Fox Mulder said, know the outcome and you will see the journey. And, and I just jotted that down because I thought that is one of the blessings of Christianity. Know the outcome and you will see the journey. 
I think that's very important for us, especially during these chaotic times in which we live, to realize that as Christians, we can know what the outcome is of what's happening around us by studying God's word. And if we know what the outcome is, then we see the journey properly through Jesus Christ. It's a cool way to look at the world right now. The expression here of who is and who was and who is to come instills confidence, courage, and perseverance in the saints, and we are reminded of God's sovereign control and guidance. Again, this is what I've talked about so much in the last few weeks, is that proper perspective, realizing that God is out, is beyond and empowered and in control of all the things that are happening. That should give us comfort. He is he, he was, he is, he is to come. He's in control of everything. Now that phrase, who is, who was, and who is to come, occurs in various ways five times in Revelation. And it's interesting to do a word study on that and look at the different contexts in which that is used as the title for God. Let's look at those verses. Revelation 1.4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So that's in the greeting. Revelation 1.8, that's the last verse we'll look at today. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's reiterating that beautiful, powerful title. We'll get to Revelation 4.8 later. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So that name is so important and so perfectly exemplifies who Christ is that the angels in heaven praise him with it constantly. Revelation 11:7 saying, "We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign." Now notice that doesn't say and is to come. Revelation 16:5, "And I heard the angel of the water saying, "Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things." Again, it leaves off that last one to come. And the reason is that those two verses are abbreviated with who is and who was. Um who is to come disappears in the later chapters of Revelation because those chapters describe the eschatological, eschatological, the end time, the final coming of God as something that is already occurring. It's being acted out right now. So that's why there's a bit of a change in that phrase as we move towards the end of the book of Revelation. And then this verse 4 closes with, and from the seven spirits are who are before his throne. Now, what is that? and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven, again, completeness, right? It, it refers to completeness. That's what it symbolizes. Seven spirits refers to the Holy Spirit. Seven representing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means by the seven spirits before God's throne. We're getting a picture there of the Holy Spirit. And we all know that the Holy Spirit is needed to bring believers grace and peace to bring believers to respond to the word of prophecy and revelation to come. Through that spirit, we can understand the things we'll study in the book of Revelation. Christians need God's grace to persevere in tribulation and the pressure to compromise to the world. The Holy Spirit gives us that strength. And we have the inner peace that only believers are blessed with by God's grace through the comfort of the Holy Spirit. One of the titles of the Holy Spirit, or one of the names of the Holy Spirit, is Comforter. You see? Now let's look at verse 5, Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So we saw the uh, who is, who was, who was, who is, and who is to come. Now it says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Quote from Spurgeon on this verse is beautiful. Spurgeon writes, when Christ gives his hands and feet to be sacred fountains of blood, and we are cleansed through his death and agony, 
This is compassion like a God. This is a sight the likes of which heaven and earth have never seen. What love must he have for sinful people that he should stoop as low as this? So what Spurgeon's getting across is right here in the beginning of, of the book of Revelation, John makes clear and includes the message of the gospel that we have been set free from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see? It's a beautiful picture. The person and work of Jesus Christ, his role that is conveyed through the book of Revelation is outlined here in verse 5. So just in this verse here, we see the role and the work of Jesus Christ outlined for us. He's called the faithful witness. He's called uh, the faithful witness. If you look at Revelation 1-2, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. That's referring to him as the faithful witness. He's he's considered, he's called the firstborn, Revelation 1-18. And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And then a ruler. He's looked at as a ruler. Or he is a ruler. Revelation 4 2 through 3, and then verses 8 and 11, and then Revelation 5, 13 through 14. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And then Revelation 5, 13 through 14, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. He is the ultimate ruler. And then he is known as the one who has freed us from our sin. Revelation 5, 19, 9, and then verse 12. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. So we see these constant explanations of who Christ is, that exemplify his attributes, his character, his person, and the work that he did all through the book of Revelation. But another thing I want you to notice in verses four and five is that John describes God in Trinitarian terms. Who is and who was and who is to come, he uses to refer to the Father here. Holy Spirit, the seven spirits who are before his throne. We just talked about that. And Son, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. But what you have to understand is that God is all three. Jesus is who is, who was, and who is to come. The Father is the Holy Spirit. You see what I mean? They all are three persons, one God. Very important for us to understand. So John addresses the Trinity right here in verse 5. Now let's look at verse 6. Again, he's praising Jesus Christ. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is very important because of a common apostasy that's been in the world for centuries. All saints are priests because we have access to the Father by and through the Son. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Through Jesus Christ, we are made priests to God. You see? He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God, and Father to, Father to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Now, how is that abused? The Roman Catholic religion relies on priests to have access to God to communicate with God. That's full-on heresy. 
The Bible says, do not call anyone on earth father. It's not talking about our natural fathers or our, our earthly fathers. It's talking about what how they refer to the Pope as being a, a, a divine father. He is not. The Pope is not divine. He's actually satanic. But you begin to see what I'm talking about here. You see? We are all priests. You do not need a priest to have a, to have a relationship with the Lord, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are priests individually if we are true believers in Christ. Worship and access to God as priests is important for a proper understanding of the temple theme throughout much of Revelation. I think this is something we will address probably months down the road when we get to that point. But one of the big mistakes I think that is made in the book of Revelation is, is people become obsessed with what's going on with the temple in Jerusalem and forget the fact that the temple, since the time that Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again, we are a temple. The church is the true temple. Christ's body is the temple. So we'll get into that more later as well. Priests serve in the temple, and that temple is the true church, the body of Christ. And then one thing else that we'll see all through the book of Revelation, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, is that worship and praise of God are seen throughout the book of Revelation. Constantly, John is praising the Lord as he's writing and explaining the things that he's being shown. Praise and worship are an integral aspect of the spiritual battles that the saints are engaged in. Quite often, we have struggles in life. We may struggle with sin. We may backslide. Whatever it is, you can always take trace that back to a lack of prayer and a lack of prayerful praise and worship. A very important aspect and part of the Christian faith, of our walk with Christ. Now let's look at verse 7. Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. So it explains who Christ is, and now it's saying, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Now I want to address with this verse a question. Does this verse fit into the pre-trib theory? The theory of a rapture prior to seven years of tribulation, which a lot of people nowadays believe in. Very important to think about this question. Can this verse fit into the pre-tribulation theory? And what I'd like you guys to do, if you're going to watch these series of sermons as we move through the book of Revelation and I and I go through the, this, the coming storm series of sermons that will be a part of much of that, start taking notes about things that affirm or go against presuppositions that you may already have about eschatology, about the end times, about the book of Revelation, and ask yourself questions like this. So just picture that. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. So we are told that if there, by those that believe in a, in a pre-tribulation rapture, that the church will just disappear. We've seen those pictures, you know, all these people are standing in church, they're singing or whatever, and then all of a sudden a bunch of them just disappear and their, and their clothes fall to the floor. That idea or theory is very hard to reconcile with this verse because it says he was coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So unbelievers, when he appears on the clouds. Just think about that. So to answer that question, that doesn't really fit in with the whole pre-trib rapture theory. And then another thing to think about is if you study that theory, it really only came about in the 1800s. That's one of the, the biggest arguments against it is it's new. Um, and it just it, it's really nowhere mentioned in Scripture. But you'll see as we go through Revelation that that argument just continues to fall apart more and more. Let's look at a couple other verses to help with this point. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. 
and the stars will fall from the sky, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Those that are going to be mourning are those that are not in Christ. They're, they know that they're now facing their condemnation. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now that verse very much agrees with Revelation 1-7, all eyes will see him. See? Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, that's the verse that a lot of people use to say, no, that's saying that the dead in Christ will rise, then those on the earth will, will go to be with the Lord with them, and we'll always be with the Lord. They say that's the rapture, and then the seven-year tribulation comes in. You see, the problem is if you believe that, and that's how you interpret that verse, now you've got a contradiction between 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, and Revelation 1, 7. But if you look at it this way, how did Christ come into Jerusalem before his crucifixion? He came in as a king, riding on a donkey, from outside the city, people went outside of Jerusalem. They welcomed him and they put palm fronds in front of him. They, they praised Hosanna in the highest. They were welcoming the king who was riding into his kingdom. That's what that was symbolizing. So consider that when the Lord returns, all eyes will see him in the clouds. He will call forth those that have died that are saved, they will go to be with him in the air. Those of us that are alive, if it happens tomorrow, will go to be with him in the air. And then we will usher, we will march with him into his kingdom and be always with him. Folks, that's judgment day. If that's how you look at Christ's return, you eliminate a lot, all the contradictions that you're going to run into if you believe that he's just going to, his church is going to just be snatched away and then there's seven years of tribulation on the world. Then he comes back, and then there's believers that have believed, like they've been given a second chance through that tribulation. So many things fall apart through that. So I'm going to address that more and more as we go forward. But just that's just three th verses to, or portions of Scripture to really think about if that's how you've been looking at the Lord's return. <laughs> and also the thing we'll get into later is, is it's important to look at things from a gospel perspective. If you believe that the Lord's going to return before tribulation, what can that do? It affects the quality of your work in the cause of the gospel. You will not be so concerned about your walk in Christ if you think that you're not going to have to suffer tribulation. A lot of people won't take Christ seriously because they'll think, well, if, if he does return and I miss it, I, I got a second chance. You start to see how this could corrupt the gospel also. Another way to look at it. Things to think about. Now let's look at Revelation 1 8. This is the last verse. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he's repeating that phrase. John is using it again, and it's straight from the from the mouth of Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we're given three descriptions or three names of Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, and the Almighty. All three of those are talking about God, specifically Christ here. So John is making clear in Revelation, all through the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ is God. Now, why is that important? Again, let's look at it from a gospel perspective. If Christ is not divine, if he is not God incarnate, then his sacrifice on the cross would not be sufficient to atone for the sins that have been committed against a perfect, divine, infinite, and holy God. That's why religions like Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, and so many others that rely partially on the atonement, 
I'm partially on human works, or they believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he's not a God, he's a created being. That's why they remain in their condemnation, because when you eliminate the divinity of Christ and you get rid of the Trinitarian teaching of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and how that works together in the gospel, the truth of that, you're now following a false gospel and a false Christ. So John pulls no punches all through the book of Revelation, making very clear that Christ is God. Christ, the Father, the Holy Spirit are one God in three persons. I'll give you some verses to show you examples of this throughout Revelation, and also one, one verse from Isaiah. Revelation 1.8, the one we're talking about, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 21.6, then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Look at Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. Revelation 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Christ's divinity is reiterated constantly throughout the book of Revelation. Very important for us to understand. A, a doctrine that you cannot be saved if you reject. It's that essential. Very important. Jesus is Alpha. He is the creator. And he's Omega, who will bring all of history to its conclusion. A new heaven and a new earth. His sovereign and perfect work of creation guarantees us of his sovereign work of recreation, all that he promises has, is, and will come to pass. See, if Christ is not God, we can't rely on his promises. But he is, and he's perfect, and his history of perfectly fulfilling every promise that he's ever made down throughout history, it's perfect. That's why we can trust and have faith that everything he tells us will happen going forward will take place exactly as he lays it out and conveys it to us through his word. So, to get back to where we started, the singularity of creation and history. What is it? Remember, we, we gravitational singularity, technological singularity, a general or ultimate singularity. What is the singularity of creation and history? And the answer to that question, and it really helps us understand the book of Revelation and the whole Bible better, if we understand that that singularity is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the singularity of creation and history. He is the reason, the cause the means, and the sustaining force of all of creation and history. The singularity that the world searches for and speculates on and theorizes about is Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating because when you're in Christ and you truly understand his word and you understand his work of creation, you'll see science trying to answer questions and ignoring God, and they just seem so foolish. You see? Romans 1, 20 through 22, Paul addresses this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now, with what I'm going to show you guys, think about that sentence, being understood through what has been made so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That is such a picture of the modern world. I've been watching this show online called The Code, and it's a guy who's a mathematician who goes around the world and he shows us how these mathematical codes in nature are just mind-blowing and how they, they'll carry out across different uh, places in nature, whether it's a plant or inside the human body at the cellular level, at the 
uh, astronomical level, these same mathematical, mathematical formulas are all throughout nature. But it's so sad because when the guy, he's fascinated by these codes, it's a documentary, but all he ever says is, well, this is the way nature does things. And that is so foolish because the one thing you see in all of these codes is what? Intelligence, thought, planning, design. And if he was looking at it, trying to discern the mind of God and being fascinated by the mind of God, he would have such a joyful, rapturous understanding of nature that he doesn't have now because of he's been told as a scientist that he has to reject God. You see? And it's so sad because if you look at guys back in history, like Sir Isaac Newton, who's considered to be the father of modern science, most modern evolutionary theory scientists either have no idea or they will not admit that between 75 and 80% of Sir Isaac Newton's writings were theological. Isaac Newton spent massive quantities of time studying God's word and writing about God's word and, and, and being fascinated by how God's plan of creation is reflected in nature and through his word and how they complement each other. And so many scientists just want nothing to do with God where it would just be the ultimate adventure for them if they realize that what they're trying to do is figure out the mind of God. Nature is not a person. Nature is not a mind. These things that you see in nature cannot come about just by chance, like the evolutionary theorists like to leave. It just can't happen. Now, I want to share something with you guys to help reiterate this point. This number is called 1.618. It's actually a much longer number. This is just the first four digits. But 1.618 is what's called the golden ratio. And this ratio can be found in mathematics, in art, in geometry, in design, theology, life, cosmology, beauty, and all through nature. You'll find this number if you know how to look for it. And the reason something like this should be so fascinating for us is because when you start realizing how a number like this, it's called the golden ratio, or the number pi, just shows up constantly all over in nature. And when you start seeing these things, you realize you're getting a glimpse into the mind of God. Now, when I show this to you right here, it's abstract. Well, what does that mean? How do you see this in nature? There's a mathematical formula you have to you have to use measuring things that will give you this number. And, and I forget what the, the formula is. I'm not a mathematician. But I'm going to show you examples of where 1.618, the golden ratio, shows up in nature. In the, um, the shell called the Nautilus shell. This is a cover for a book about the golden ratio. Um, the Nautilus shell, all through it, is full of the golden ratio. If you cut it like this sideways, right down the middle, where's my, my pointer here? If you slit it right here and you looked at the chambers and you did the mathematics that had to be done and you measured it, you would always come up with that golden ratio all through the Nautilus. It's built on the mathematical formula of the golden ratio. So the sh what that tells me is that the, the shape of the Nautilus shell is a divine shape directly from the mind of God. Amazing thing to think about. Consider this. This is inside the Nautilus shell in the upper left here. Each one of these chambers represents the golden ratio. Now look at this, I guess you could say, uh, galaxy or star structure from outer space matches this, and we have the golden ratio here. Look at this plant growing. The golden ratio is, is what this plant uses, is, is the math that is used as this plant grows. Storms on the earth as they spin are perfectly within the formula of the golden ratio. This fossil from millions of year, years ago the golden ratio, a sunflower seed. If you measured it and you did the, the, the mathematics, it would equal the golden ratio.
So it's all through nature. But so many scientists, when they look at this, they think, well, this is just the way nature did things. That is the most ignorant statement. There's got to be some kind of design behind things. There's got to be some intelligent thought that is able to carry this formula through so many different parts of creation. You see? We're getting a glimpse of the mind of God. And I think that's what Paul was referring to in that verse of Romans that I just talked about. Again, the nautilus shell, sunflower, what's considered, they use it to actually measure a woman's face to get a perfect idea of beauty. The Egyptians used it in the structure of the pyramids. Sorry, I should be on the screen here. The Greeks used it. In their architecture, you see the golden ratio drawn right here. Leonardo da Vinci was fascinated with it. He used it for the Mona Lisa. Salvador Dali understood it. He used it for his painting of the Last Supper. The human ear reflects the golden ratio. And I don't know about you guys. Maybe you think this is stupid. But to me, these kind of things are fascinating because this is where we see God in nature. And what's fascinating about it is just think of what it's going to be like when he returns, when we are with him eternally, and all this stuff becomes clear to us. All this gray area that we just slug through our whole life trying to figure things out, it's just going to endless understanding of the way God did things. Again, the Mona Lisa and how Leonardo da Vinci used the golden ratio to lay out this painting, and it's the reason it's considered the greatest painting in history. Many artists use the golden ratio. This is Vesuvian Man of, of Leonardo da Vinci, and they found the golden ratio in this as well. So the point I'm trying to make is, it's so fascinating to study scripture if you realize that we are trying to uncover the mind of God. And I'm so excited to go into the book of Revelation and to look at it through fresh eyes and to see how God is reflected through his word and also through nature and how the book of Revelation and, and other books of eschatology like Daniel are being carried out right in front of us. But I think when we start studying things and we realize that God is reflected in his word, that's how he, he teaches us and he guides us, but we can look all around and see him reflected in the universe around us as well. Praise the Lord for that. I'm going to close with Colossians 1.16. Jesus is the singularity. He is the center of creation and history, the cause of everything. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So just think about that. That little baby in the manger, the man who did the miraculous works for three years, walking around that area in the, in, in the Holy Land in sandals, his mind is the mind that came up with the golden ratio that we get to see reflected in nature. Praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your awesome word, uh, for all that we get to learn of you. And Lord, I ask that as we go forward in this year, that you would just expand our minds, open up our spirits, uh, remove anything that blocks us from having a greater understanding and a wisdom of you and your word and creation. And may all that we do glorify and honor you in this coming year. And Lord, just uh, please just help us to serve you and honor you in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it for today, folks. Um, like I said, the ministry is growing. we got a lot of really cool new opportunities coming up, but we need more people to come on board and support us. Please consider doing so. All you have to do is go to the way, the letter R122.org, and click on the donate page there, and uh, consider helping us monthly. Uh, there's, there's a lot we want to do, and a lot of opportunities uh, that seem to be uh, presenting them that the Lord's giving us right now that we want to pursue. So uh, thank you so much. We will we'll be back here next week, same time, same place. God bless.